Okay, you remember 1993? Do you remember that comedy that came out called The Groundhog Day? And do you remember that at the time it was just like, yeah, pretty decent comedy. Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, he's a weatherman stuck in the same day. And he just keeps reliving the same exact day. And if you remember seeing it in the theater in 1993, it was like pretty good. But now, how often is that movie being referenced? Groundhog Day is happening to me. That is why every day seems to be flying by like that. Like that. I'm snapping my finger. In the blink of an eye, a day will pass. Because there's no novelty anymore. And if that is the truth, that novelty is the one thing that makes time feel like it's slowing down a little bit. To do some things out of your comfort zone, out of the ordinary. That's what slows time down. But if we get stuck into that hamster wheel routine of doing all the same things that we do each and every day, then it just feels like life is flying by. And you can't even sink your claws into it to slow it down. And I'm accepting this. I'm not even resisting it. I'm just stating the obvious. I'm in Groundhog Day. Maybe some of you are also in Groundhog Day. It doesn't matter if it's a weekday or the weekend or a holiday. It doesn't really matter what meal you're on, what season it is. It's the most monotonous phase of life I will ever experience. It has to be. So there's that scene where Bill Murray is on the park bench. And he starts to realize, okay, I know everything that's coming. He says, dog barks, gust of wind, sheriff enters the bank, lady walks into the crosswalk, adjusts her bra, and he starts to narrate life. And of course, everything he says happens. I can do the same thing. Honestly, I wake up 6.50 a.m., out the door at 7 a.m. I grab two treats. I grab two doggy bags, put a leash on Muggsy, out the door. I make a left. I see the same neighbor. Good morning, I say. Good morning. Hanging in there? Yep, hanging in there. Same exact conversation. I make another left. I go into a school parking lot. I see another neighbor who I'm friendly with. We have the same discussion. What's in the news? You hear about the schools, the latest developments with COVID-19. I keep going. Same loop with my dog. I come home. At that point, my daughter runs to me. She's in her pajamas. I make oatmeal and eggs and coffee. Now, I don't want to act like I'm eating the same thing at every meal, but I kind of am sometimes. So there's some variations, and then I do remote learning with my students, and then a lunch, then my daughter naps, and I read, and I grade, and I exercise, I go on a run, and I listen to the same few songs, a lot of living legends lately, a lot of grouch. Then after the run, I take that shower, then I start thinking about dinner, then I start preparing cooking, thinking about what are we going to watch today, texting all my friends. Hey, what are you watching right now? Hey, what are you doing right now? Hey, is this real life? Then in the evening, my wife and I are on the couch and I don't think we're totally sick of it yet. I don't think so. We're just kind of accepting that this is reality. And if we all do this, it'll flatten the curve and we're saying the right things and trying to do the right things. But really, when I think about every day, it starts to feel like such a blur that I have pressed fast forward on life. And this is Groundhog Day. I even know for my evening dog walk, which neighbor I'm going to see, which plant he's going to sniff. And the podcasts that I listen to, I know what day of the week they come out. Here's Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend on Sunday. Here's Chris D'Elia on Monday. Here's Bobby Lee on Wednesday. And what they're talking about is kind of monotonous. It's still entertaining. 
Basically, what keeps us coming back to a podcast is the familiarity. It should have some variation, but it's not like, you know, eventually you just want me to do a science podcast. (laughs) Josh's science podcast. It's exactly 30 seconds. How many episodes? Half. But there's going to be some changes on this podcast. Oh, yeah. We're going to have some new intro outro music very soon. So buckle up for that. We're going to have a new logo, new podcast art. Sure, really the two requirements. And then, oh, yeah, a microphone to speak into. But if you're creating a podcast out there, you need the logo art, you need some music, and maybe something to talk about wouldn't hurt. Most of the time I have that. Not always. I think I've proven that. Not always. But yeah, most of the time. Could find a little something to talk about here in episode 89. Hmm. What's on the menu? Episode 89. The podcast is called Here We Go. The human is Josh Rosenberg. The town is Santa Fe. The state is California. The country is USA. The planet is Earth, I believe. And the crisis is COVID-19. I think you're caught up. How many of you are improving your homes right now? Just redecorating, rearranging furniture, doing your own landscaping, doing some gardening, changing the look a little bit. If you have to be in your home this much, you might as well do something to your home. Maybe dramatic, maybe just subtle. But I was thinking about art. You know, I look at all the art on my wall and I go, it looks good to my eyes. I'll be honest. I've never cared how much art costs. And I'll be even more honest. I have walked through Ikea and Marshalls, Home Goods, and I've seen some art that I like just as much as the stuff I saw at the Uffizi Museum in Florence, Italy. Academia. What's it called? Academia? The other museum? You get tickets, you walk through, you see these Renaissance paintings and these sculptures, and you go, unbelievable. Michelangelo. Da Vinci, Botticelli, and it's the best, but you have the historical context. You know these names, these famous names, and you know this era called the Renaissance, and you know this town called Florence, and it's so much hype that we now look at the paintings and we have all of that in our minds. However, what if we didn't? What if someone just showed you the Mona Lisa? What if someone just showed you the Mona Lisa and said, you want that in your bedroom? Isn't the answer fuck no? Like, honestly. Renaissance art, I, it's fine. I mean, they're talented. But I saw a photo of the Golden Gate Bridge at Ikea once, and I was like, you know what? That's a little that's a little better for my eyes than The Last Supper. You show me a painting of a bulldog at Ross for 14 bucks. I genuinely enjoy looking at that more than, let's say, The Birth of Venus. Botticelli's famous, The Birth of Venus. We have floating babies. Angels with their hair in the wind. Oh, look at the attention to detail. I'm like, yeah, look at the bulldog. It's probably a print. I mean, of course it's a print. But the point is, art gets hyped. Art has reputation. Art has dollar value connected. And it causes all of us to see it differently. But what if you just saw it in its purest form? You had never learned about any band. And you just heard the music. Sometimes... The art we consume already has a reputation and it has guided us. Whether we know it or not, it has guided us to enjoy it. I thought about this recently because I've talked about the Beatles on this podcast and some of my teenage students, they don't like that sound. And I go, but you're wrong. You know, the Beatles are a good band. And I've had some students go, oh, it sucks. Yeah, actually, uh, that band sucks. Because when I listen to it with my ears, I don't like the way it sounds. And I go, oh my God, maybe the Beatles are not timeless. Maybe it was more so my generation that had parents living through Beatlemania and it filtered down and we just said, of course, this is great. These are good songs. But now teens are another generation detached 
from the hype of Beatlemania and they listen to it and they go, uh uh-uh. Music, of course, it's relative to the individual, but what about plays? Shakespeare? Shakespeare? That's the most boring stuff ever. My mom actually enjoys Shakespeare. She'll go to a Shakespeare play. King Lear, Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Hamlet, Othello, all this stuff. It's like torture. If you ever said, Josh, I have free tickets, front row, best actors doing it too. The greatest actors doing Hamlet. Are you interested? I would genuinely rather look at a toilet that hasn't been cleaned for six to seven months. And that toilet would elicit more of a reaction than watching Shakespeare. But don't I sound like a moron? Because everybody would say, well, Josh, Shakespeare's the greatest playwright. Don't you know about the old globe? Wherefore art thou? Greatest tragedies, the greatest comedies. Don't you know? And I just go, that's not for me. First of all, I don't understand it. And second of all, it's not timeless to me. This is what, from the 1600s? There's a play being written right now by a kid at the high school I work at that I'd rather watch. It's just how it is. Doesn't mean I'm not cultured. Just being honest about art in its purest form with no reputation and no context, it would actually allow all of us to think about what we enjoy. Instead, we're told, well, this, this is what thousands, no millions of people have loved and paid a lot of money for and pretended to enjoy for many, many years. If I knew none of the history of Shakespeare, none of it, never had to sit through a class where we studied it, went line for line. Don't you have memories of this? Being taught Shakespeare and struggling? There's probably one out of 30 kids that's like, oh, so exciting, so intriguing, tell me more. And then most of the kids are falling asleep. That's Shakespeare to a teenager. Most, not all. But if I had never learned any of that, and you just took me out to an amphitheater to see The Merchant of Venice, my level of enjoyment on a scale of zero to 10 is at a zero. It's at a zero at that point. I'd say I'd rather see Jersey Boys. Give me some Frankie Valley. My eyes adored you. Jersey Boys was good. Maybe the best show I've ever seen. And to someone that truly appreciates live theater, if you say, I thought Jersey Boys had some better moments than Othello, you sound stupid, right? Like if I tried to say, what other plays have I enjoyed? Oh, boy. Annie. I've seen Annie. It's okay. Hairspray. Guys and Dolls. South Pacific. Peter Pan. I'm just thinking about the mountain play in Mill Valley on Mount Tam. I've seen a lot of them. I think I like one out of 100 of them. Plays just feel so antiquated. Like, why are they still doing this play? Well, because they've done it for years and years and years. And students have done it for years and years and years. It's always the answer. Students should be doing live theatrical performances of Groundhog Day. Gust of Wind. Dog Barks. Now we're talking. What's better, Groundhog Day or Romeo and Juliet? What do you think? What would most people say? What's better? The scene where Puxatoni Phil pokes his head out or where uh, Romeo and Juliet die? Give me Puxatoni. Give me that little gerbil climbing out of his hole. Give me I Got You Babe by Sonny and Cher. I'm going to watch Groundhog Day tonight and it's going to make sense more than it's ever made sense. I'm stuck in the same moment, even sitting here in this black reclining chair, talking into this silver microphone, Overlooking my laptop, under these two windows, staring into the sky, doing episode 89. Same old shit, right? I mean, I should really liven it up a little bit. All right, sorry. Not a great intro. Welcome in. Today's going to be a very special edition. I know that. I've got your attention now, right? You're ready for something. You're ready for something. Let me give you something. 
I'm reading a book right now that is tailor-made for me and my brain and my eyeballs. I'm reading The Odyssey by Homer. Ha <laughs> ha! No, you're not. You fucking kidding? No, I'm reading something called The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty by Ethan Sherwood Strauss. I am his demographic. He's just basically telling stories of the locker room with Steph and Clay and KD and Draymond and the owner Joe Lacob and Steve Kerr and Bob Myers. And oh my God, how did he squeeze this entire dynasty into 230 pages? Well, he did it. It's a tell-all. There's gossip. It's scintillating. It's juicy. Not going to get into all of it, but I will say this. Do I say that too often? But I will say this. Just say it already. It's a verbal crutch. We all have verbal crutches. Hey, but I will say this. At the end of the day, you know, the thing is this. Just fucking say it, right? All right, I will say this about the Ethan Strauss book. It's good. You know, it's your classic BB+. I've been reading too many of these sports tell-all books throughout my whole life to really think one is so much better than the others. They're all kind of in that B to B-plus range. Some of them dip into C. Some, I guess, are like really good and would get an A grade. But most sports books, if you ever go into a Barnes & Noble, go through the sports section, they're all really the same caliber. And when I say that, I mean, you know, if it's a memoir, same caliber of Ghostwriter. And if it's a tell-all, it's like, all right, you probably heard a lot of the rumors leaked before the book even hit the shelves. But with this one, on the topic of Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant's one of the best basketball players of all time. Kevin Durant was a major acquisition for the Warriors. And fans liked him. Actually, I can't speak for most fans, but a lot of fans liked him. Some didn't feel like he was needed. Were they a championship caliber team without him? Yeah. Yeah, they were. But here comes KD, and it turns out he cares how fans feel. There's a major part of this book dedicated to Kevin. And this reporter who wrote the book, he says Kevin always had that phone in his hand. Pre-game, had the phone in his hand. He would go through Twitter, go through blogs, podcasts, every article ever written about him, and read the message boards, and he really cared. He was that sensitive of a superstar. He knew every journalist in the room, what they thought of him, what they wrote of him, what they speculated. And he was so touchy, he would call them out. He would whine, he would complain. He was like an emotional wreck. Here he is, the greatest player in the league, one of the top two or three. Yet he cared what some fan thought about him, and he would retaliate on Twitter. He would have fake accounts, but he would always have the phone in his hand. Wouldn't even really interact with teammates after games, just had his phone in his hand, had his phone in his hand, had his phone in his hand. And the writer, he talks about how these guys are not creating that camaraderie. When you think about Jordan's Bulls, you know, smoking cigars, having drinks, playing poker, a lot of them are just scrolling through their own phones, which can lead to depression, which is why the commissioner, Adam Silver, who I like a lot, he was interviewed and he said, to be honest, these guys are unhappy. The commissioner of the NBA is saying that. These guys collectively are unhappy because they're way too exposed to the haters and the critics. NBA, you used to be anointed. As a god, godlike figure. But now these guys, they read about some schlub who's tweeting negative things about them and they care. A lot of them care. Why? Because they're humans. And why are they looking at these comments? Well, the access is there. Ask yourself that right now. If you knew a lot of people were publicly commenting about you, would you look? You know you would. You know you would. A lot of us say, nah, who cares? Nah, I wouldn't care about that if I had people talking shit. Yeah, you would. Most people would take a look at the comments from time to time. And would it alter your mood? Yeah, it kind of would because you're human. This idea of thick skin, it's a concept. doesn't always exist. You could develop it, I guess. It takes work. But naturally, people are like Kevin Durant. And more guys in this league 
are depressed and miserable. And they take it out on the reporters. And it was so ugly. The chapter about Kevin Durant. Now, I fast forward to this documentary. We're all watching, right? The Last Dance. Michael Jordan and the Bulls. I didn't realize his final season in Chicago was so dysfunctional. I honestly didn't realize that because I was a kid. And the media climate was so different. It actually allowed you to just focus on the hoops. Focus on the basketball. I didn't know the drama in the locker room, nor did I need to know or want to know. But this documentary is all about that. Actually, I shouldn't say all about that. There's great highlights of the on-court greatness, but it tells your Pippin stories, your Phil Jackson stories, your Rodman stories, your Jordan stories. And I'm like a kid again. You know, bring your popcorn. It's a 10-part documentary series, and it's so sacred right now because we don't have live sports. And I can tell everybody's soaking it up. If you're a sports fan, a basketball fan, this is just gold. This documentary, it's so well done. And all these stories, a lot of them are new to me, even though I remember living it, witnessing a lot of it. I didn't know so much of Jordan, but I do know he played in the right era because if he was playing right now with all this Twitter, with all this TMZ gossip, and he was being dissected and overly analyzed by a bunch of idiots on social media, maybe his character would have been ripped. But back then, throughout the late 80s into the 90s, he was just, you know, a poster on your wall. He was Elvis. He was the Beatles. Jordan was the celebrity who people loved. He didn't have to be a Bulls fan. And it's such a contrast to this book I'm reading where players are unhappy today as they scroll through Twitter. What? What What is this unhappy? You're playing basketball in the NBA. And Jordan seized that at all times. This documentary shows you somebody that had so much swagger and so much bravado and confidence, and one of the greatest looks. In my opinion, he's the greatest looking human. He is. He's just the greatest looking specimen. Everything about the guy. Symmetrical, height, weight, muscle, structure. Michael Jordan, even the colors they wore, it all fell into place. The black and red of the bulls, the starting lineups, the intros, all the commercials, everything. It just all culminated into this mystique of a bigger than life figure, and I think he knew that. He knew not to come back down to earth. He knew he was becoming a brand. That's not just a human anymore. You're a brand. And he trained himself. He trained his ears to just go deaf. Here's a guy that couldn't go to a market, a gas station. He couldn't go anywhere in public without hundreds of people just screaming his name. I love you. I want an autograph. I want a photo. I love you. I want an autograph. I want a photo. Running up to him. He trained himself to build the shield around him, the shield of coolness. You never saw him flustered. You never saw him stressed. The coolest motherfucker in the history of sports trained his ears to go deaf and you see this in the documentary people scream michael i love you he just keeps walking that's cool i mean yeah he could acknowledge fans and he did you know here and there but he carried himself in a way where he knew what he was doing never melted down with the reporters i'm not going to give you anything i'm not going to give you any fodder whereas kd oh my god he comes across as this spoiled bratty eight-year-old who's just so upset with the writers michael could have been but he didn't share it publicly he knew when the cameras were on he was a brand and he perfected that how do i know he makes more in one year right now here's the only stat you need he makes more in one year of his own shoe sales than he did in his entire career collectively all the money he made as a player is less than one year of shoe sales nowadays And therein lies his genius. His superpower was playing basketball. Okay, that was his superpower. But every other move was so calculated, it led to this. Billionaire who remains so big that in this quarantine, in this shelter in place, it's like Super Bowl type entertainment. 
the way people are tweeting about it, talking about it, even sports websites and sports radio shows, they're talking about it like it's new news. They're talking about Jordan right now as if all of this is happening in real time. It's a beautiful thing. I had his shoes. I had his shoes when I was 10 years old. I wore them to my sister's bat mitzvah with formal wear. How cool was I? Or how weird was I? I demanded. I got to wear my Jordans to this bat mitzvah. That was a formal bat mitzvah. They had the two, three on the side. That's how big he was. You didn't have to be a Bulls fan. You just said, yeah, I'm caught up in this. It's magnetic. And ultimately, I think because I love nostalgia, I am enjoying this documentary more than any of the games I saw Kevin Durant play for the Warriors. Kevin Durant with the Warriors, fine. Good. Some nice highlights. He's a great player. But this documentary, are you kidding me? I'm jumping up and down in my living room. My wife must think I'm a complete fool. She said, it's okay, it's okay, because I am acting like a 10-year-old when I watch this documentary. Just giggling and screaming. I love it. I remember that. Shani, look how high he gets. Look how far he jumps. She's just like, I'm watching. I'm watching. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. He made that shot. Shitty, look, look, look at it. He hit another three. He hit another three against the Blazers. And then he looks at the sideline. He goes, I don't know. Shitty, look, he, he, look, 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 look. He, he's dunking on Bill. Her husband has regressed. That's what has happened. Just sweatpants, big old beard, watching Jordan on TV. She didn't agree to this under the chuppah. This is what she's getting. Stuck in Groundhog Day with this guy? Come on, I mean, I am showering. But yeah, lapsing. Quite a bit. So every school district right now. Let me get back to this for a second. Screen time, screen time. A lot, 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 a lot of screen time. So a lot of districts are wondering, how do we grade these kids? First of all, how do we find these kids? Make sure they're even looking for the assignments or doing the assignments. How do we test them? How do we assess them? How do we grade them? So every district is, you know, doing something kind of different. Some are just saying credit, no credit. Some are saying A's for everybody. Some are saying a universal pass. Some are allowing the kids, you could pick letter grades or we'll give you credit. Some are just going to write in N-A, no assignment, like just neutral. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to help you. Some of the kids are worried that they'll be at a competitive disadvantage when it comes to college admissions. So just the academic side of it, usually I harp on, oh, no prom, no graduation ceremony, no sports, no socializing on campus. But really, academically, for a moment, our district has gone to credit, no credit. So if you do anything, doesn't matter. Could be poor work, could be quality work. You get credit because the integrity is gone. We don't even know if they're doing their own work. It could just be cheating and cheating and cheating and submitting this work that maybe their parents did or friends did. So I get it, you know, and it's kind because it's not equitable anymore. We don't know the Wi-Fi situation for a lot of these kids from low-income backgrounds. You know, are they even able to go to a laptop computer? Or are they now helping their parents generate an income? So this is a crisis. And this is the part that tugs at my heart the most. Like I said, I'm not always thinking about the actual people in hospitals right now. Sometimes I'm nearsighted and just see the sphere around me. These students, the ones suffering the most, maybe are the ones that wish they could do a little more academically but they just can't. So that being said, I have a Zoom. Let's say I have 160 kids invited in world history. I get about, I don't know, 15, 20. So a very small percentage, very small percentage. In journalism, I get about half the class you know, doing anything anymore. So motivation has plummeted. And here we are, it's almost May, got about a month and a half left. And the whole system is just slipping away. And we're trying so hard to stay in touch. But me personally, the idea of like right now teaching Mao, Mao Zedong and the communist revolution in China, 
usually I teach this with some video clips, some readings, got some audio, got a gallery walk, we'll study quotes. Now it's just like you post things and you try to zoom with these blank faces and it's not there. We're being tuned out. And I've even heard some teachers are tuning them out. Some teachers are already on summer break. I don't just want to act like it's just the kids who aren't motivated. I've heard some teachers are like, yeah, if I'm only getting a few kids, why even show up? That's some weak shit right there. The adults got to be adults. I remember my first year of teaching. You know, if the kids tune you out, you have to adjust. Like when I was a rookie, one of the fellow teachers and I were talking and we're like, yeah, you don't show black and white and British voiceover. You show these kids any clip, any footage, and it's black and white with British voiceover. And at that point, Kepler knew that they were not circular shaped orbits, but they were oval. You got to find something in color. Okay, we have Netflix, Amazon Prime, we got Hulu, everything is restored, digitally restored in color, high def, fast paced, add some music, okay, add some emojis, let's wake the fuck up for this generation. You show them black and white footage with a British narrator. Good night. So I learned that early on. And now I feel like I have control with the whole classroom flow, you know, year five. I feel like, okay, you know what? I know when to hit them, boom, with that scene. You know every documentary you've ever watched? You know that aha scene? I always have it like queued up to that. Like I'll guide them with a discussion. I'll guide them with some background and some knowledge. And then I'll say, now let's roll the clip. And I'll watch the kids and their heads are exploding. It's the most exciting moment. I'm kind of describing this learning experience with a lot of hyperbole. But at least you know those moments if you're a teacher where you have their attention. You're like, wait till they catch a, wait till they catch this shit. Wait till I give this to wait till they hear what happened next. But now it's just like I'm on a screen and you're on a screen, and can you learn about Mao? And I'm on a screen and you're on a screen, and do you know anything about Gandhi? And I'm on a screen and you're on a screen, and here's your test. And what are we doing? A cyber approach to maintain sanity for these kids, maintain connectivity. But we know it's not working. Every district is probably the same right now. Sending out a ton of emails. You know, maintain your mental health. Be there for the kids. And take care of yourselves at this point. And then overhyping us all like we're heroes. Nurses, doctors, you call them heroes, I'm down with that. Teachers right now, though? Like, are we heroes? Am I a hero in my sweatpants? You can answer that. I'm not going to answer that. You can answer that one. Superhero. Those kids want to wear my shoes. The Rosenbergs? I was born with these superpowers. I'm able to post a Mao assignment on Google Classroom with the best of them. Anybody else noticing how many people are biking and walking and running and biking and walking and running? Kind of makes you smile, right? How many people, like, they'll move 10 feet away from you? If they're 50 yards away and they see you, they'll move 10 feet away. Then when you pass, acknowledge. Thank you. Thank you. And then if they don't acknowledge you, you feel that it, it, little bit of rage and then it passes real quick, real quick. Got to be neighborly at this point. We have to be neighborly enough to move the hell out of the way. Neighborly enough to give them a little salute, a little point and say, have a good walk. Okay, have a good day. It's been hot out. Have a good day. The small talk Olympics right now, it's going on. You got to be good at it. Don't be that bad neighbor who just has your head down. I saw an old man walking recently, old man, and he gave me the number one finger sign, and then he 
extended it like a point. It was the coolest shit I've ever seen. This old man, he even had a strut. White hair, an old man hat, you know, where it's just like beige, faded logo. Flannel. From a mile away, he's got that finger in the air ready to point to me. And boom, when he pointed, I was like, wow, this dude had some neighborhood swagger. I'm going to steal that. You put your finger up, like number one, and then when you're about 10 feet away, point. Give him a point. Keep that finger up, though. From like 100 yards out, they'll be like, what's going on with the finger? And it's all about you. Point. Acknowledged. There you go, neighbor. So go outside. Here's your mental health update. Go outside. Move out of a neighbor's way. Be neighborly and nice. Try to find some novelty. What do I mean by that? I don't know. Find a takeout restaurant that you trust. There's your novelty. Actually, there is no novelty right now. Let's just zoom through this and hopefully it ends soon. All right, that's episode 89. 89. It's in the books. Adios. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>